especially here, we have kind of a cross-section. We have some Arab brothers and we have some uh, American brothers. Uh, so what uh, I want to do, I want to give some important points today, inshallah. And at the same time, though, I want to leave the floor open. Uh, during the discussion, it's supposed to be a workshop. It's not supposed to be a lecture. So I, I, I want to leave the floor open during the discussion that if you have some questions, uh, inshallah, we can cover it uh, during the lecture. And also, in case we need, and we probably will need, I will go to the board, inshallah, and uh, be writing some things uh, on the board. <coughs> the the first point that usually we begin with in, uh, in this kind of uh, class, or this kind of workshop, is a discussion of the of the importance of the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Well, I would hope, and I think, inshallah, that everyone here is, is familiar with the importance of the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu to the point that, inshallah, we do not have to discuss that in great detail. But if uh, if for some reason some brothers feel like they would like to discuss that in more detail, inshallah, and when we start opening the floor for questions, uh, inshallah, we can discuss <coughs> some of the aspects or some of the evidences demonstrating the importance of the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu one other aspect that we might get into tomorrow, we're kind of covering, uh, or at least originally I had planned to cover kind of two topics. That is uh, an introduction to Ulum al-Hadith from the point of view of the scholars of Hadith, as well as a discussion of the Sunnah from the point of view of the Usulin or the, the legal theorists. Well, inshallah, we will probably leave most of that uh, kind of discussion for uh, tomorrow, inshallah. So, first off, I said, I'm not going to discuss the importance of the Sunnah unless you uh, insist on it. <laughs> in which case, I will. I will simply remind you that the Prophet ﷺ, uh, told us in a hadith recorded in Sahih Muslim that everyone will enter Jannah except for those who refuse. And when he was asked who would refuse, he said, whoever obeys the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ will enter Jannah, and whoever disobeys him has refused. Well, this one hadith of the Prophet ﷺ is the only uh, hadith that. Uh, concerning the importance of the Sunnah that I'll mention at this time just to give us a reminder of in fact the importance of the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad that he has made it practically that simple that if we follow him and we obey him and we follow his path, his Sunnah then inshallah we'll be among those people who have accepted the invitation to Jannah uh, while in fact if we refuse to follow his Sunnah and we want to reject his Sunnah uh, we will be from among those people who have refused actually refused to enter paradise well, inshallah, as I said, as we go along and as we open the floor for questions or as questions come, we'll get into some topics, inshallah, which uh, are important topics uh, from the point of view of, of what is happening in the Muslim world nowadays and in particular here in the United States. Well, before I begin, I guess I should define sunnah. As some brothers have asked me to do this uh, because apparently there is some confusion. Define what we mean by sunnah and define what we mean by hadith. Well, inshallah, I'm going to define the sunnah from every point of view except for the point of view that Ali al-Tamimi, Brother Ali, would speak about, and that is from the point of view of the aqidah. That's his, that's his subject. I have a gentleman's agreement with him. I don't touch his subject. He doesn't touch it. <laughs> <coughs> right, so, inshallah, Musa, okay with you, we'll move to
Well, by the time that we finish the, uh, the last lecture tomorrow, you'll begin to be able to read my handwriting, inshallah. In the meantime, just uh, bear with me, inshallah. One conclusion that comes from the word sunnah itself is that, as I alluded to, depending on the field of study, depending on how you're approaching the topic, you have a different definition for the word sunnah. And this has caused some uh, confusion, especially among uh, American brothers and sisters, where they kind of think that, in fact, in one lecture after I give a lecture, a long lecture about the importance of the sunnah in Islam, uh, one... Uh, one sister said, well, in my opinion, the Quran comes first and the Sunnah is okay. And if you want to follow it, it's good. If you don't want to follow it, just do it. Well, this concept also, you hear it from some other people, and sometimes it's because of the confusion of the way that different people use the word Sunnah. So, the word Sunnah is defined differently by its followers of Hadith. by jurists and by legal theories. The brother mentioned that there's many different sciences that we need to know about. Uh, here are three of them, Ulum al-Hadith and Thaqq and Usul al-Thaqq or legal theories. And as I said, there's another one which is Aqidah. I will not get into that. While each one of these three groups, they discussed or they defined the word Sunnah based on how they're approaching the topic and based basically on what they want to do with the, uh, with the concept. The one that somehow causes some, uh, somewhat of a problem is the definition of sunnah as given by the jurist. When we say, by the way, when we say that it is obligatory to follow the sunnah, even before I get into definition, when we talk about the importance of the sunnah, when we say that uh, it's obligatory to follow the sunnah, even before that, that I get into any definition, which one of the three are we talking about? Which definition? To answer it correctly, you may leave. You don't have to say it. <laughs> How many say hadith? Kutsi. How many say from the jurist point of view? How many say from the legal theorist point of view? And when we talk about the importance of the sunnah and Islam and the fact that we have to follow the sunnah, we're talking about the definition of the sunnah from the legal theorist point of view. Okay? Now, how do the jurists define sunnah? I think everyone knows that if you say this act is sunnah. The jurists, the jurists, the fuqaha, they want to study actions from the point of view of our responsibility towards that action. Do we have to do it? Is it recommended for us to do it? Is it permissible? Is it disliked? Is it forbidden? And so forth. So the, the jurists, how do they find the word sunnah? Is this my work? Yeah. You heard the question or the <laughs> <laughs> how, how do this now? Go ahead. Okay, now that is, uh, and you, almost, almost, yeah. there's probably some better words than that. Yeah? But basically, the, the jurists, when we talk about when they talk about sunnah, they talk about an act which is not obligatory, nor is it simply permissible. It's something in between, which we might call a recommended act. And in fact, for them, basically, sunnah and mustahab and mandub are basically the same, the same category. 
Okay, so when the jurists talk about something as sunnah, they mean that it's not obligatory. Okay. And this is the definition from the jurist's point of view. It has nothing to do with what we talk about when we say that the, uh, or it has very little to do with, with what we talk about when we say that it is obligatory upon the Muslims to follow the sunnah. So don't get confused by that definition and think that the sunnah means something which is not obligatory. That's from the jurist's point of view. You can find something in the Quran, now I'm really going to confuse you. <laughs> you can find something in the Quran, something from the Quran which might be obligatory or it might be sunnah. And you can find something from the sunnah which is obligatory, not sunnah. <laughs> that's depending on what you mean by the words when you, when you say it. So, the jurists use the word sunnah, what they mean by that is a recommended act. Don't get confused between their terminology and what we mean when we say it's obligatory to follow the sunnah. Right? Now, let's see, where should we go to next? Hadith, from the hadith point of view, okay, what we're going to be discussing uh, later is from the hadith point of view. How do the scholars of hadith Muhaddidin define Sunnah. Act. Same. Let's call it the tacit approval. Huh? What kind of characters? Physical. And moral characteristics. Okay? So, from the point of view of the scholar of Hadith, the Sunnah, they define the Sunnah as any act of the Prophet, any saying of the Prophet, Muhammad, anything that the Prophet approved of without necessarily mentioning that he approved of it, but just tacitly approved of it without saying anything. But they also include his physical and his moral. Uh, his physical character, if you say that the Prophet had few gray hairs, it's part of the sunnah for them. And because what they're worried about or what they're concerned with is that body of literature that is related to anything related to the Prophet Muhammad yeah. Anything that comes from the Prophet Muhammad anything that is narrated from the Prophet Muhammad or about the Prophet Muhammad this is what they're concerned with and they call it all sunnah. And that's why I said that when we talk about the sunnah as a blade sword to follow, we're not talking about this definition because this will include some things which is not actually obligatory for us to follow. In fact, I was talking with one brother earlier, there's, there's a hadith of Prophet or hadith about the Prophet that when he used to sleep, uh, like before at Fajr time, he used to make a snoring sound. That doesn't mean that when we go to sleep we should try to make a snoring sound and when we, as we're sleeping. Because this is from uh, one of the physical, you can call it physical characteristics of the Prophet Muhammad A muhaddith, a scholar of, of hadith would say this is from the sunnah. Okay? But a legal theorist would not. How does a legal theorist define the, the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad Okay, the first three, we have his saying, we have his tacit approval, 
And to be, and to be uh, specific, we should really say some of his actions, not necessarily all. Okay? Because the Usuliyin, they divide, they divide the actions of the Prophet Muhammad into those actions which are Qudwa, or that we are supposed to follow and are authority in Islamic law, and those which are not. We just gave an example of one which is not, this snoring. Okay? The, the, the legal theorists will not consider that uh, part of the Sunnah, or at least not part of the Sunnah that has legal authority or legal status. Okay? So, when we talk about the importance of the Sunnah, we're talking about this uh, third definition that includes the sayings, the tacit approvals, and the majority, let's put it this way, the majority of the actions of the Prophet Muhammad said. Okay. But for this, for this class here, for this workshop, we are worried about, or we'll discuss basically, the uh, Sunnah from the point of view of the, of the scholars of Hadith. In other words, we are concerned with basically uh, the body of literature, the body of literature that comes from or about the Prophet Muhammad okay. Now, uh, you might hear, and we'll talk about later, how there's such thing as, as a weak hadith or a fabricated hadith or something of that nature. The sunnah, okay, regardless of whether we're talking about from Hadith's point of view or legal theorist's point of view, all of the sunnah is true. The sunnah is the actual statement or actual practice or actual uh, characteristic of the Prophet Muhammad okay. So there's no such thing as a weak sunnah <laughs> or false or fabricated sunnah. Okay. The sunnah is the actual thing. Now, how do we know about the sunnah? How do we learn about the sunnah? How do we know what the sunnah is? Where do we find that information? That information is in the body of literature known as hadith literature. So that's what we mean by hadith. The hadith, when we talk about hadith, we're talking about the literature or the narration, whether it's written or oral or however the case might be that has been passed on about the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad okay, So the Sunnah is the real thing, and the Hadith are things that are narrated about the Sunnah. Some of those narrations may be fabrication. So you can have a fabricated Hadith, but you cannot have a, a fabricated Sunnah. Wait. Now, this is, by the way, as I said, basically, or as I alluded to, this is basically stuff that uh, we were going to be covering yesterday. Uh, so I'm going to go over some of it uh, quite quickly, inshallah. Now with respect to this hadith literature now, these are the, the narrations about the Prophet Muhammad and the narrations from the Prophet Muhammad And it's important for us to realize and to know that this, this hadith, this entire body of literature was preserved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the Muslim Ummah. And in fact, there's a verse in the Quran in which many scholars point out as the proof, as the proof that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserved the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad. What is that verse? Now, how is that a proof? The verse says that we have we revealed the dhikr. 
that we have revealed the zikr and we shall preserve it. Okay, now how is that a proof that the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad has been preserved? Okay, there's another... Uh, now? Let me put it a different way. <laughs> some people say, if you if you mention that verse to some people, that we have the, revealed the dhikr and we shall preserve it, they will tell you that the dhikr here means the Quran. So in other words, this verse is saying that we have revealed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed the Quran and shall preserve the Quran. What's your answer to this? Right. Okay. The 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 point that the that the brother is making is that when we talk about the Quran and we talk about the preservation of the Quran, are we just talking about the preservation of the wording of the Quran, or is it the wording and meaning of the Quran? Which one? But if it's both the wording and the meaning of the Quran, if we go to other places in the Quran, like the verse that the, the, the brother mentioned, that we have revealed to you the dhikr in order to explain unto mankind what has been revealed for them. And if this verse of the Quran and other verses and other hadith of Prophet and this is another topic, <laughs> shows that the meaning of the Qur'an, the, the true and the correct meaning of the Qur'an, can only be found by looking through the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad By looking at the hadith of the Prophet Muhammad and his explanation. Even the Sahaba, the Sahaba were experts in the Arabic language. The Qur'an was revealed during their time and they saw, they witnessed the events that the Qur'an was referring to. Yet even they, sometimes, they did not understand the Qur'an properly without the Prophet explanation. So the meaning of the Qur'an, the meaning of the Qur'an is found and it through the hadith, through the explanation and through the implementation of the Qur'an by the Prophet Why even those who claim to reject the Sunnah completely, they fall into this trap of following the Sunnah when it comes to implementing the Qur'an. Uh, I don't want to get sidetracked by too many stories because we don't have much time. But uh, one time I attended a, a conference, uh, Rashad Khalifa was giving me a conference one time, up in the mountains someplace north of San Francisco. And me and some brothers, we attended that conference. They didn't let us speak to Rashad Khalifa because they claimed that we came to kill him. <coughs> uh, so we had to speak to his followers. So, uh, in discussing with his followers, we said, for example, they, they absolutely, I'm sure you all know Rashid Khalifa, they absolutely reject the idea that we have to follow the Sunnah, and they claim that they do not follow the Sunnah at all whatsoever. For example, they pray, I don't know if they still do, but they used to pray in a manner similar to us. And we asked them, how did you get that prayer, where this prayer from, come from? They said, this is from Ibrahim. They have narrations back to Ibrahim, but the Prophet Muhammad <laughs> They don't follow his sunnah. So we we asked them we asked them one question. Oh, well, we asked them many questions. <laughs> they asked us many questions. 
especially multiples of 19. Really, <laughs> I know almost all the multiples of 19 after this. We ask them from the Quran now, and it just going to the Quran. What is the punishment for the thief? What is the punishment for the thief in the Quran? Yeah, you know, if you say it in Arabic, you ruin the whole thing. <laughs> because you may say it in Arabic and you may not know what it means. <laughs> in English, what is the punishment for a thief? Okay, now I'll ask you, is that what it says in Arabic? No, it doesn't Okay, it just says to cut the gift. Okay, that's all it says. And one of the one of the guidance of the Prophet with respect to explaining the Quran is that sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses general terms and the Prophet has shown us that it, it means specific things. Sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses unconstrained or mutlaq terms and Allah and the Prophet it was his role to show us what exactly it means. So the yad, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala orders us to cut the yad of the thief. And the yet in the Arabic language is what? It can be all the way up to here. It can be all the way up to here. So all of these Rashid Khalifa followers, they all said it is to cut the hand of the thief from here. They claim that we do not follow the Sunnah. They say we reject the Sunnah. The Sunnah has no source, no authority whatsoever. So we asked them, well, how do you get this? Well, most of them weren't Arabs anyway, so it was kind of a useless conversation. <laughs> to try to tell them that yet actually can be anything up to here. And the only way that we know for certain this is from here is because of the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promises to preserve the dhikr, it cannot possibly mean just the wording of the Qur'an, but it must mean the wording of the Qur'an and also its explanation, its meaning as found in the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad now how did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve the sunnah? Well, in the same way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserved the Quran, and it was through mankind. Right? Abu Bakr, remember they collected the Mustaf and so forth. Well also with respect to the, uh, the hadith of the Prophet and from the earliest years there's many things that the Sahaba did to make sure that the hadith, the words of the Prophet were preserved. Okay, for example one of them, <coughs> So these are ways in which the sunnah was preserved. Now those who have studied signs of hadith before realize that we haven't gotten to anything related to signs of hadith yet, but inshallah, before the next conference is finished, inshallah we'll get to it. <laughs> One thing they used to do is they used to record the hadith in public Okay. Now, with respect to recording, recording in general, I want to ask just two questions to make sure that we're all clear about this point. Is that in order for something to be preserved, does it have to have been recorded, physically written down? Okay, so in order for something to have been preserved, it's not necessarily the case that it has to be recorded. Right? Yeah? Even authenticity. Okay. For example, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Many people know that from the time of uh, Lincoln. Even some people have never written it down, have never uh, passed it down in written form, but they know it. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this nation. 
and so forth and so on. If you grew up, I never read it in any book, but I knew it memorized uh, before I ever saw it in any written form. So recording is not necessarily required to preserve them. And one of the attacks upon the Sunnah, as we talked about in the lecture earlier today, that yani how the uh, Kufar in particular tried to attack and make the people doubt the Sunnah, one of the ways that they made them doubt the Sunnah was by claiming that the Sunnah was not recorded. Well, first of all, it does not need to be recorded to be preserved necessarily. But also, we should also keep in mind that if something is recorded, is that sufficient for it to have been preserved? Okay. And these, these points are something that the scholars of Hadith knew very well. That for something to be preserved doesn't necessarily mean that it had to have been recorded. And just because it's recorded doesn't mean that it was preserved uh, correct. But in any way, alhamdulillah, the, uh, we know that from the earliest times in Islam, the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ were recorded. Uh, for example, even during the time of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn Al-As, one of the Sahaba, he used to record everything that he heard from the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Well, even when some people told him not to do that, that maybe the Prophet is a human being, maybe he gets upset, he doesn't want you to record what he's saying. When they told that to Abdullah, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al he went to the Prophet and he asked him about it. Well, the Prophet told him to record, for nothing but the truth leaves his uh, tongue. And we have actually many examples of hadith of the Prophet that are, are recorded from the time of the Prophet Muhammad. In fact, his letters that he wrote to other uh, rulers, his letters that he wrote to governors and so forth, these are actually his hadith. They're no different from, uh, from his hadith. So, the recording of the hadith of the Prophet began during the time of the Prophet Muhammad Some of the Sahaba had their own collections of hadith. Now, before I continue, this is a footnote. All of you who know me, you know that I'm used to writing, not speaking. I don't like speaking. And when I write, I use lots of footnotes. The beauty of an article is in the footnote, that's my theory. <laughs> there's some stories, by the way, about Abu Bakr, that uh, he, he had written down 500 hadiths from Prophet and then he couldn't sleep one night, and finally he got up and he, he burnt those hadiths. And Aisha asked him why he did that, and he said, because these are hadiths that I heard from other people, and I don't know whether or not they are authentic uh, from the Prophet Muhammad And this story is not true. There's also another story from Umar al-Khattab that he thought about recording the sunnah and he discussed with the Sahaba for about a month and then finally he decided that the people before him were destroyed, the people before the Muslims were destroyed when they began to bring another book or another writing to compete with their book and so therefore he gave up the idea of recording the sunnah. Also this story is not true, there's no, uh, it cannot be authentically uh, verified in any way. Yes. Did you have a question? The collection of the hadith was not done till the collection of the Quran is completed, then the hadith. They were not involved in the confusion. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, what was happening during the, the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad You had hadith written recorded, and you had the Qur'an recorded. But it seems clear from hadith of the Prophet that he did not allow the Qur'an and hadith to be recorded on the same, uh, and she don't want to use modern terms, 
on the same leaf, for example, on the same bone, if you use more realistic terms, what they were using back then, they would not be recorded at the sa on the same item, on the same uh, writing material. But, as we saw, for example, Abdullah bin Amr bin al-As, during the lifetime of the Prophet used to record hadith. And other Sahaba used to record the Qur'an. And in fact, the Prophet Sallallahu uh, Alaihi Mustafa al-Azami, who's done a lot of research in the recording of hadith, also has a book about Kutab al-Nabi, or, or the, the secretaries or the writers of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And he has found up to now uh, over 60 people who were, their job was to write for the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Some of them were specialized just in writing the Qur'an. Okay. So when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam received revelation, for example, Muawiyah was one of them, when he received revelation, he would ask for one of these scribes who was just to write the Qur'an to, re to record that revelation. For his hadith and his letters and others were uh, jobs of other people to record. So they were actually both being recorded during the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad But hadith, of course, hadith we're talking about a vast amount of literature. So we're not saying, we're not saying, and don't misunderstand me, we're not saying that all the hadith of the Prophet were recorded during the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad and we're not saying that. Okay. All the Quran was recorded during that time, but not all of the hadith is from Muhammad. Yeah. Did the hadith if, if this hadith is authentic, we can say that this was a threat or this order from Sallallahu not to record the hadith is what was to the writers of the Quran, the same writers, so that they, they don't get confused between the Quran and the hadith. Yeah. Uh, the hadith you're referring to, which the Prophet said that whoever has written anything from me other than the Quran should erase it. This hadith is uh, recorded by Abu Sayyid al Khudri and it's in Sahih Muslim, it's, uh, it's uh, authentic hadith. Uh, because of time constraints, I didn't go into all of this in, uh, in great detail, but and it, the, the principle is you take that hadith of Prophet and you take many other hadith like the hadith of Abdullah bin Amr al-As, the hadith of Abu Shah during the farewell, uh, during the farewell, uh, during the pilgrimage, the Hajj of Prophet in which the Prophet gave a khutbah, and Abu Shah came to the Prophet Muhammad and said, I would like this khutbah recorded. So the Prophet ﷺ told one of his scribes to record it for the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. I mean, to record it for Abu Shah. Well, a hadith close to the end of his, his life in which he was going to record something. And this shows that the prohibition of recording hadith that is found in the hadith of Abu Sayyid al-Khudri is either, as you alluded to, either it is specific with respect to recording hadith and, 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 uh, and Quran uh, on the same uh, sheet or whatever. <laughs> Or it is the early uh, command from the Prophet that it was abrogated by later, later command and so forth. And the different scholars have discussed this and come up with different views. The important thing <coughs> is that we know that by the death of the, the Prophet Muhammad he had given a general, or there was a general understanding that it was permitted to record the hadith of Muhammad So the hadith he referred to is uh, Sahih. Like in Alhamdulillah, we have plenty of other evidence to show that there is no prohibition. Uh, against no general prohibition against writing the uh, hadith of Prophet Muhammad Well, with respect to how much hadith, how much uh, hadith was recorded during the lifetime of Prophet, uh, during the lifetime of Prophet Muhammad during the time of the Sahaba and so forth, 
I recommend you read a book that's available in both English and Arabic so none of you are excused. <laughs> and I think also it's in Urdu, by the way. Do we have any Indonesian brothers here? Because I think it's also in Indonesian. <laughs> this is uh, Sheikh Mustafa Al-Adami's PhD dissertation, Studies in Early Hadith Literature, in which he discusses this, this topic in, in, in great detail. And in fact, we even have, uh, from, the, uh, from the early years, we have even a sahifa or a collection of hadith from Abu Huraira that was passed on to one of his students and so forth, that, and he continued to exist as a separate work and continues to and it exists nowadays. Uh, the sahifa of Hamam, Hamam ibn uh, Munabdah. This sahifa was passed on to his students. This is from Abu Huraira, hadith from Abu Huraira. That he passed on to his student Hamam, who passed on to Ma'amad, who passed on to Abdul Razak. The collection of hadith that has about 136 hadith from Abu Huraira that he dictated to his student Hamam. Well, this what you're going to find, why I bring it, why I even mention this, is that there were many early books, many early collections, uh, usually under the name of Sahifa, some kind of Sahifa, Sahifa Sadaqa, for example, of Abdullah bin Amr bin Al-As, who said that there's only two things in his life that he treasures, and that is the piece of land that the Prophet had given him, and that's Sahifa or that collection of hadith uh, from the Prophet Muhammad Well, usually what happened is that what happens to these early works, why we don't see them around that much nowadays, is that they were incorporated into later works. So for example, in Musnad Ahmed, Musnad Ahmed is a very large collection of hadith. Yeah, it's about this big on my bookshelf. It's a large collection of hadith. And it is arranged according to the, the, the Sahabi who narrated the hadith. Okay, so for example, all of the hadith of Abu Bakr will be here, and then Omar, and then Uthman, and then Ali, and then for example, Abu Huraira. Okay. So what you will find is that this book uh, was passed on by, by Ma'amur to Abdurzaf, and also to other students, and Abdurzaf passes on to other students, and also to Imam Ahmed. And it continued to exist as a separate book. Okay? As-Sahifa, As-Sahiha. Continued to exist as a separate book. And copies of it have been found recently that continue to pass on until I think something like the 8th or 9th century. But if you compare this book and you go to the Muslim Ahmed, you will find underneath the Hadith of Abu Huraira with this exact same chain, all of the Hadith of Sahifa, As-Sahiha, except for Two or three hadith, I don't remember exactly. And exactly the same wording, everything. Well, if you go to other books, for example, other books taken from other students of Abd Razak, you'll go to Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, you'll find the exact same hadith. For example, I think 99 out of the 137 are in Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, with the same chain going back to Abu Ghraib and so forth. So in this particular case, we see that the book continues to exist as its own book, but we also see how it is incorporated into other works. And this is basically what happened with the early works. There was many earlier works. Uh, Sheikh Al-Adami in his dissertation shows us uh, that many people had their own collections of hadith of that thing. But what happened to them is that they were basically 
not overwhelmed. <laughs> they were basically consumed or put into the larger later works. So the earlier works, the earlier smaller works, we don't have anymore. Many of them are lost. But we have reference to this guy having a book, this man having a book, this was a name and so forth. But they were captured and they have been collected in the later, later uh, larger works. Now this has led some people, since some of these earlier books don't exist anymore, some people thought there were no early books. No, there were early books. But because of the nature of the way that Mahabibin collected the information, they, ne they didn't refer to the book itself. It was rare. They did sometimes. But they would rarely refer to, like, the Sahifa. They would just give you the chain. And you would not realize it's from that book unless you studied in detail and found all oh, these are all from this, uh, from this book. So we have from the, from the early years the recording of hadith, but as we said, that is not sufficient to preserve something. That, and it, by itself, the fact that hadith were recorded doesn't mean necessarily that they were preserved. But also we have, uh, from the early years, a very important science from the point of view of, uh, of, of hadith studies, and that is the science of al-jah wa ta'deel. What what is this science about? Okay, this this science is part of taking care of the fact that recording by itself is not sufficient to make something, make sure that something is been preserved. This science is to make sure, or to study the people who are passing on the Hadith literature, to make sure that they are acceptable in passing on that Hadith literature. And what do we mean by acceptable? For example, if, if someone comes to you right now and says your car is being thrown away, thrown away, Oh, okay. Trust the word. Okay, what's your name? Smiley. So someone comes in now and says, Smiley, you're He looks on it. And this brother comes in. Someone tells you, yes, he's an honest person. I know this person for 20 years, and he's an honest person. So, would that be sufficient to make you run out and uh, get your car? You know, for me. For me? Uh, I have to look about the person involved. <laughs> okay, you, you know that person. Yes, that's true. I mean, you have to look also towards this guy. Standing. You know him? Yes. You know him for 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> How old are you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there might be some question about this narration I'm giving you. <laughs> this is another point we'll get into later. And so, so you know this guy since one year before you're born, and he tells you that the other one is honest. I would go. I would go and look at it. So, so, here, apparently. <laughs> Very logical word. But is that sufficient? Imam Malik used to talk about some people in the mosque that if these people, and it were to swear by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah will fulfill their command. 
Yes, I would never take any hadith from him. Why is that? Yeah. Okay, so basically you need two kinds of requirements. Uh, one is more requirements. One is the more requirement that you know that the person is not a liar. And the other one we could call it, I guess, uh, what? Academic requirement? Literary? Uh, academic, let's call it academic. That's the beauty of teaching uh, hadith in English. You can make up your own method of uh, <laughs> Because it turns out that that brother, instead of saying Ismail, he actually sort of said it's possible. And you ran out there and it wasn't your car, it was somebody else's car. So you want to make sure that he has both kinds of qualities. The moral qualities that he's not a liar, that you can trust what he's saying, and also you have to make sure that he has, that he is proficient. That when he passes on knowledge, he is someone who passes it on correctly. If he's, to jump ahead, we're talking about there in the news, but to jump ahead a little bit. If someone, for example, is narrating to you from his memory, you have to make sure that he has a good memory. And if someone to you is, is narrating to you from his books, you have to make sure that his books are in order, as an accountant would say. <laughs> you have to make sure that his books are good, you know, especially at that time. You know, some people did not have very good books. And if you know that about a person, you don't accept his hadith from uh, books. Now, when did this, this concept and this kind of checking, when did it, when did it begin? After the fitness. Oh, and that brings us to another story. I hope I don't forget it. Uh, fitness. Yes. Remind me of the, the fitness story. He says after the fitness, any... Okay, uh... I say, and since I'm the teacher here, what I say goes. <laughs> I say it began from the earliest times in Islam. The idea of checking and making sure that people are narrating properly, not just checking, making sure that they are honest. I mean, the Sahaba used to check each other sometimes. For example, the, the, the Abu Bakr, during his lifetime, someone brought up the question about the inheritance for a grandmother. Well, the, Abu Bakr said, I find nothing in the Book of Allah or the Sunnah about the inheritance of the grandmother. So someone, and I don't remember who, uh, he said that she received one-sixth, that the Prophet used to give her one-sixth. So Abu Bakr, knowing that person was an honest person, but I mean, this is something major that he had never heard about, he asked him to produce a witness for what he thinks. And to make sure that what he's narrating is correct. And even, an even clearer example of this was their goal is from the time of Umar al-Khattab. So we're talking about the first two Khalifas, Abu Bakr and Umar al-Khattab. Umar al-Khattab, one time uh, Abu Musa al-Ashari came to visit him. He asked permission to enter. No response. He asked permission. A witness for what you have said. Abu Khattab doesn't have to say much more than that. And he said, and so Abu Musa was frightened. And he went to a group of Sahaba who were gathered someplace and he told, told them this. Well, they laughed about it because it's a woman hadith. To them, they knew it. So they sent the youngest one among them to go with Abu Musa and tell him. 
وعمر بن الخطاب told Abu Musa he told him that I have no doubt about you I do not have any doubt about you and that you're lying or so forth but I wanted to make sure that the people the people are careful in narrating hadith and prophecy so the Sahaba were very careful to the point that and if they could if they could uh, avoid narrating hadith and prophecy they would do so and they used to perspire while narrating hadith and prophecy afraid that they might add even just one little uh, a letter, a wow word doesn't belong and so forth. Because the Prophet Sallallahu said in in Hadith Man Kadaba Aliya Mutamalan Salyatabawamakadumanar that whoever intentionally says something wrong on my authority he should take his speech in the hellfire. But some of the Sahaba were present at times when the Prophet said Man Kadaba Aliya Man Kadaba Aliya Salyatabawa Makadumanar that whoever says anything wrong on my authority shall take a seat in the house. Because kedaba, kedaba in the Arabic language means to say something wrong. Say something which is not true. It doesn't mean to lie. It means to say something which is not true. So in some narrations, and to some sahabas, the Prophet said that whoever is saying something that is not true from me, that is not correct, he shall take a seat in the house. So the sahaba were very careful. And in fact, even during that time, uh, Abu Huraira, <coughs> some Sahaba, they did not narrate hadith because they did not continue to study it after the time of the Prophet. One Sahabi who was asked by someone who had spent some time with him that I do not hear you narrating hadith like the other Sahaba. He said that he said that's because after the time of the death of Prophet I became busy in uh, other things, the junior. Why well, did not study this thing like the other uh, people studied? For example, Abu Huraira. Abu Huraira used to spend his night, split his night into three categories, uh, three uh, times. He would spend one night, one third of the night sleeping, one third of the night in prayer, and one third of the night studying hadith. Well, your father said that now we take it much easier, we make it all one, one segment, we just sleep during the whole time. <laughs> well, so Abu Huraira was even from that time, and he known to be studying hadith, passing on hadith literature, and even among the Sahaba he was known to pass on, and sometimes more than the other Sahaba, because this, I mean, this was his life. So one time Umar al Khattab brought him in and asked him, do you remember such and such night? He said, yes. He said, do you remember what the Prophet told us on that night? He said, yes. The Prophet said, this hadith, that whoever intentionally uh, says something wrong in my authority, he shall take his face in the hellfire. But when Umar al-Khattab saw that he had, and that was clear in his mind what the Prophet said, he told him to go and marry hadith, because he wanted to make sure that Abu Huraira is being careful about marrying hadith. And he remembers the warning of the Prophet about uh, marrying hadith. Also we have, that we can call those examples that I gave you, kind of like, uh, use modern terminology, uh, cross-checking. And you take one person and you check his hadith with someone else, well, also we find from the earliest times something we should call time series. <laughs> These terms you'll not find in any book in the Hadith. <laughs> we, we have, for example, uh, the case of Aisha. Aisha told her, her nephew Arwa that uh, Abdullah bin Amr al-As is coming to make Hajj this year. So go to him and ask him about some Hadith of the Prophet that, he had, that he had heard. And he was living in Egypt, so he was coming to make Hajj. This is a good opportunity 
And even among themselves, they used to learn hadith and said hadith. It's a good opportunity for uh, her to hear the hadith that Abdullah knew. So Arwa went to him and asked him about hadith that he'd heard from Prophet and he told him some hadith. So he came back to Aisha and he narrated those hadith to Aisha. One of the hadith he narrated was the hadith that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not take the alm away from the people by snatching it from the heart. Sit down. Does not take the knowledge away from the people by, by oh, you're continuing the hadith. I thought you were correcting me. <laughs> okay, does not take the, the knowledge by, by snatching it from the heart, but Allah allows the scholars to die and do not, and other scholars do not resist. Well, this hadith was strange for Aisha, she had never heard it before. And I believe it was two years later, Abdullah bin Amr al-As is coming to make hadith. They used to do that, many Sahaba used to do that, one year, send it in jihad, next year in jihad, jihad, jihad. So she asked, uh, she asked Arwa again to go back to Abdullah bin Amr al-As and ask him about hadith that he heard from the Prophet And in particular, it seems she wanted to know about this hadith. So he did, and he came back. And Abdullah had narrated exactly the same way that he did before. So Aisha said that he must have memorized it exactly as he heard it. And in other words, her goal was she wanted to make sure that the way he's narrating is exactly the way that he heard it from the Prophet Muhammad And he does not change it two years later, it's exactly the same. To make sure that this wording is exactly from the, uh, the Prophet Muhammad So these things from the time of Abu Bakr, from the time of Omar and Aisha and so forth, these are really the development of the, the science of Jahwa Ta'adir, where basically narrators are graded and tested to see how good they are. And in later years this, this test was, uh, or this science was, uh, and we have biographical dictionaries of thousands of thousands of, of narrators. You'll not find this in any other society, any other civilization, nothing like what you will find uh, among the Muslim, uh, Muslim Ummah. Well, this practice of checking and making sure that people are narrating properly and it continues. Uh, for example, what they used to do sometimes, one of the common ways of passing on hadith is that uh, sometimes the chef would bring his book and he would read his book to the students. And even, for example, you'll find a hadith. And then after the hadith, in many of the early manuscripts, and even, by the way, from early times, Early times they used to mention everyone who was present at that session, and he liked taking roles, so-and-so was here. Sometimes they would mention that so-and-so entered after the fourth hadith, and it was like taking roles. Well, after, after the hadith you find a big circle like this. What's the purpose of this circle? from his own and the purpose, the purpose of this circle is that after they would read, for example, if, if sometimes they would do it the other way, that they would read to the chef. So after every time they would read the hadith to the chef, they used to put a line to it. I mean, they were not like us that we read, for example, after Maghrib 15 hadith after the other Salahin and then we go and two months later we might read a few more hadith. I mean, they used to read sometimes three or four hadith at a session. And they would go over them many times. Such as you'll find many manuscripts where, and after the hadith, you'll find many lines to it. Meaning they read this same hadith many times to the chef. So what they used to do sometimes to check the chef, 
is that the students, and so sometimes as I said, either the sheikh reads the students, sometimes the sheikh gives his book to the students, and the student reads the hadith. So in this way, the sheikh can concentrate fully, and he doesn't have to worry about reading. He can concentrate fully on the hadith. And after the student reads the hadith, if he approves of it, if it's correct, he will nod or something of that nature, showing that this is the hadith. So sometimes what they used to do, is they used to bring hadith that are not from the book. Not from this book, and not from this sheikh. And they used to read hadith. So the sheikh just said, yeah, yeah, that's my hadith. That's my hadith. And, and it's not actually his hadith. This was some of the ways that they would notice that this person is not careful in narrating hadith. And this person is not able or is not able to distinguish his hadith from other hadith. So if he's known to do this often, and he will be known as, as a weak narrator hadith. This person doesn't know his own hadith that he's narrated. Well, another example comes from the life of uh, Al-Bukhari. Al-Bukhari, when he was young, he was traveling as, as they used to all do. The young uh, scholars used to travel throughout the Muslim world gather hadith from all corners of the Muslim world and then go back usually, not always, <laughs> go back to where they came from and then and then uh, teach. So Al-Bukhari when he was young he was coming to Baghdad. And his reputation was and already preceding him. They already know this is the young Al-Bukhari coming, the great Sheikh Al-Bukhari, the great young Sheikh Al-Bukhari. <laughs> so he comes to Baghdad. And there are people there waiting for him. And they meet him in a public place, and there's ten scholars and a whole bunch of, uh, I want <laughs> a whole bunch of commoners. <laughs> okay. And so, each scholar comes up to Al-Bukhari and reads him ten hadith. Well, after each hadith, Al-Bukhari says, I don't know this hadith. After each hadith, I don't know this hadith. Like the scholar finished, the other one stands up, reads him ten hadith. After each hadith, I don't know this hadith. And probably by this time a few in the audience started to leave. It? <laughs> and this person must not, must not be what, what, uh, what we thought he was. And so they all finished. The ten scholars finished. That's 100 hadith they, they read to him. And after each hadith, he said, I don't know. And this was a study of al-Jahwa hadith. Because after they were finished, then al-Bukhari said, well, I will tell you what hadith I know. So he started from the beginning to the end. All 100 hadith, what they did, what they did, the scholars of hadith know the hadith, not just the text of the hadith, but they know exactly who narrated and where it came from. So what they did is they used to give the hadith with the wrong isnad. So when they give the hadith with the wrong isnad, this is called a hadith. So Al-Bukhari said, I don't know this hadith. So when they were all done, he reread all 100 hadith with the correct isnad. He said, and it is the hadith they know. The scholars, of course, know, and all along, this person must know, at the end, even the audience is convinced. <laughs> and when he, when he read uh, all 100 hadith with the correct... Well, then Hajj writing on this incident, he said it's even more interesting that he remembered the all 100 hadith and gave them back in the order that they, uh, that they read them. So this science of Jahwa Ta'adil, actually, where they're testing Al-Bukhari to make sure that Al-Bukhari is someone who is proficient and so forth. And this is one of the ways that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserved the hadith of from the early years, the science of Jahan Another way, and from the early years, from the early years of uh, Islam, perhaps, 
Does anyone have any questions? It's supposed to be sent to question. There's not any. No, remember, don't be intimidated by any instructions. Not be in, in, intimidated or irritated by anyone. That must include the speakers. <laughs> now, any questions at this, uh, at this time? Yes. No, I'm getting Yes, I'm getting I haven't been there no questions? Okay, when did the use when did the use of this net begin? Do you understand the problem? Are you sure? Well, the last time you heard this lecture. <laughs> yes. Uh, this hadith, I don't think it's authentic. There's some problem with the synod of this hadith. <laughs> huh? Yes, I know. Yeah, I know. I know the hadith. Yeah. Oh, that's a different question. <laughs> that's tomorrow. <laughs> Wait. Uh, any other guesses about when the use of the snap began? Hmm? Now, what's your proof? Oh, by the way, what is this now? Okay. <laughs> so we'll define that first. This now is what? Okay, it's the chain of authority. Tracing it back to the problem. Right? Yeah. Yeah. This is not a class in logic. Please. If a Sahabi, if a companion of the problem, Muhammad heard a hadith from the Prophet, and then he narrates that hadith. The Prophet says to himself, Did he mention this man? Well, that's a, that's a heavy question. That's for your father, I think. That's <laughs> What's this man? You said he didn't mention it? You said he didn't mention it. What sense he mentioned? So did he mention this man? What's the source? So he mentioned this man. So by definition, by definition, the use of this man began during the time of the Sahaba. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, his, he heard from the Prophet He didn't hear from anybody else. So when he heard, I, when he said, I heard the Prophet said this, uh, it's not as uh, it's mentioned. It's kind of a loose point. Is more than to invent one? 
Well, there is. Yeah. By definition. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Okay, that's not a, that's not a point point. Yeah. I was Okay. Okay. So your point is that they didn't. What happened? What was happening during the time of the Sahaba is that if they heard it directly from the Prophet Muhammad and they narrated it from the Prophet. Implicitly, you can say they mentioned it now, or you can say there's no, it's not in that case. But what happened during the time of the Sahabas, they did, they did not always mention the Islam. Let's put it out. Because, for example, Ibn Abbas. How old was Ibn Abbas when the Prophet Muhammad died? Let's see. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not <laughs> I know that he was young when the Prophet died. Yeah. He was. I don't know. <laughs> I, I believe uh, you're both sick. I believe both of you. <laughs> so, okay, so he was young when the, when the Prophet said to him that. Now, they say, some scholars hadith say that actually of the hadith that he passed on from the Prophet said to him, he only heard eight of them directly from the Prophet. And in fact, one time he was asked how did he get his knowledge. He said he got his knowledge by standing in the cold wind and waiting for the Sahaba to come, the elder Sahaba to come out of their houses, so he could ask them about the thing and ask them about Hadith and Sahaba. So, here's a Sahabi who got most of his knowledge actually from the other Sahaba. But he did not always mention that I heard this from so and so from the Sahaba. He would usually narrate it directly from the Sahaba. This is, uh, this is called the Muslim of the Sahaba. If you're interested in that, don't worry about that if you didn't <laughs> this thing. Now, but when we talk now about the, the use of this nad as a whole, when did people begin to insist on the use of this nad? When did the Muhajjitin begin to insist, okay, what are your sources? Now, after the fitness, what's the fitness? Okay, the death of Uthman. What year was that? Death of Uthman? 35? 35 or 37? 35. Fine. I believe you. I'm very flexible sometimes. <laughs> 35. How many years after, is this after the death of Uthman Hussein? More than a trick question. 25 years after the test of the process. Okay? And this is based on some reports that we have that, for example, Ibn Sarin said that they didn't used to ask about this Naz okay, until the Fitna. And then after the Fitna, they begin to ask about this Naz and say, name who are your authorities. And they make sure that they name their authorities. And that began around the year 25. After, I mean, uh, 35 after the Hijrah, or in other words, 25 years after the death of the Prophet Muhammad Well, I'll just end on uh, one or two notes <laughs> to show you how the uh, how the 
mystification, or how do you orientalists think, you want to call it thinking, they're opposed, they're opposed to, uh, to Islam. One, one person, his name is Shah. He wrote, from the orientalist point of view, he wrote one of the most important books on Islamic law, him and Buddhism. Okay? Now, Shah is talking about the use of this net. Now, Shah believes, by the way, he has this theory that the Isnad was projected backwards. And he concludes that the better Isnad, the better the Isnad, the stronger the proof that the Hadith is fabricated. And because he says that until 200 years or 250 years, they didn't have the Isnad. So they had to make it up backwards. What does he, what does he do about this statement of Ibn Sirin? which is narrated authentically, it comes from many things, there's no question about the authenticity of this statement from Ibn Sirin, at least from our point of view. What does he do about it? Well, here's what he does about it. The, the, the statement is that they did not used to ask about people in this man until the fitness. Right? What do you understand from that? What does any third grade Muslim understand from that? Everyone knows what the fitna was, right? So what's the meaning of the word fitna in Arabic? Trial, tribulation, uh, civil war, some kind of commotion. Uh, so, so here's what Shaq does. Shaq goes to the a book of history by Imam Al-Tabari. Very famous, very important book. And he finds in the book of history by Al-Tabari a reference to a fitna. Okay. The fitna was the death of someone, I forget his name, Walid ibn Yazid, something like that. Okay. This fitna in, in the, uh, this in, in the book of Tabari, he went through Tabari's book. <laughs> I guess he skipped the first 500 pages when it talks about the fitna of Uthman. And he finds a reference to a fitna in the year 127. The death of Walid. Okay, or Yazid, I don't remember. Or Walid ibn Yazid. Hmm? Oh, well, I don't, I don't recall. Don't recall the exact... Uh, well, I don't, I don't recall the exact... He found the word fitna anywhere, somewhere in the public. So, that happened in the year 127. So what did he conclude? Did he conclude that... Uh, this nad was begin to be used in the year 127? No, no, that's too much. What did he conclude? Well, he went back to the statement from Ibn Sirin, as I said, as narrated by many people from Ibn Sirin. And you know what he did? He went back to the statement by Ibn Sirin and said, nah, until the fitna they didn't use to ask, and then they used to ask, name the authorities. And he said, look at this. This statement by Ibn Sirin, and then today died in 111. So the statement must be a fabrication. That's his conclusion. The statement must be a fabrication. And instead of looking for a fitna that occurred before Ibn Sirin, because this has been narrated from, by many people from Ibn Sirin, no. He said, no, it must be a fabrication. Because this is a fitna from 127. And Ibn Sirin died in 111. So then he goes on to say that this matter was not used for 61 and 30 and so forth. While in fact we know that it was became prominent, prominent and important, and people stressed on it by the death of Osman. Uh, 
I'll just mention one last thing here. The traveling in search of hadith was another way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserved the sunnah. Again, I'm going to be sincere about that. It is a difficult question. And in fact, uh, Al-Badari, I want to get your question. Don't just hold it. Al-Khatib al-Badari has a book that is called Rahalat Al-Qawm al-Hadith. What's the book about? <laughs> This must be a good question. <laughs> What's the book about? Book, ladies. Rahla fi al hadith. What's the book about? Huh? It's not a geography book, no. <laughs> well, I told you that scholars, all scholars went out and said the hadith. This is a book about scholars who went out in search of one hadith. That they would travel, for example, for one month to verify one hadith. And this started during the time of the Sahaba. One of them traveled from Medina to Egypt to meet another Sahabi to ask him about a hadith. And he told him that you and I are the only ones alive today who heard that hadith directly from the Prophet So this book is a collection of uh, people who went out, a collection of stories about people who went out in search miles just to find one thing. So most of you have Okay, the, the, there's a question here from the sisters, not exactly related to Ulum al-Hadith. But uh, it says, recently I read in Imam uh, Malik's Muqtah, the section on settling a hadith that confused me as a rather new Muslim. The hadith said that Umar al-Khattab told a Muslim uh, to beat his wife and slave because they had settled each other, intending to make the slave ineligible for marriage. They obviously weren't on their best behavior, but how could this merit a beating on the Prophet to forbid the harming of a wife and slave? Where does something like this from the hadith fit into the Sharia? Well, the hadith that the sister is referring to, uh, it is a case where Umar al-Khattab was the, was the leader of the Muslims at that time. He was the ruler at that time. So he was implementing a law or he was implementing a punishment that is similar to like the punishment for a thief cutting a hand off. Only the difference between is that there's some uh, punishments which are clear from the Quran and Sunnah. There are other punishments that the, uh, the Imam has to make his own ishihad and determine what exactly is the punishment to be. This is known as the ta'zir. Well, this is the case of Umar ibn Khattab in this case. I mean, they are being beaten, not beaten in the sense that uh, uh, you would beat the slave or uh, a human, I mean, an individual beats his own slave or beats his wife. But it is from the state as a punishment for what they, what they had done. But tomorrow, inshallah, we'll get into it. Zakallah Khayyateh, Farakallah Brothers and sisters, uh, Alhamdulillah, uh, our brother has uh, enlightened us. Uh, in spite of the uh, short amount of time and the broad subject, Alhamdulillah, uh, he has touched on some, uh, some issues that, inshallah, may have helped uh, to uh, 
motivate us to want to know more about this subject. It is a very wide subject and a deep one. Inshallah, uh, let us uh, uh, try to, uh, in the future, uh, uh, get more information about this subject by attending lectures like this or, inshallah, uh, getting literature on the subject and always asking about, you know, issues in, in hadith and other sciences of the, of the, the deen, inshallah. And the fact to say, subhanahu wa ta'ala, we Thank you very much.